You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. This is outside my area of expertise, and also, footnote, I'm recording this on Monday, and you won't hear it until Tuesday, and a lot can change in 24 hours. But right now, Brett Kavanaugh is still the nominee for an open Supreme Court seat. And I have this crazy thought about this Brett Kavanaugh business, an idea, a plot, something so crazy, it just might work. Brett Kavanaugh, of course, is the rapey Federalist Society stooge that President Rapey Orange Slushy nominated to shit on the Supreme Court. As we record the top of this week's show... The Montgomery Sentinel is reporting that investigators are looking into a potential fourth sexual assault allegation against Kavanaugh. President Rapey Orange Slushy defended his nominee as unblemished shortly after the third allegation was made. So you got to wonder how many women or how many college wrestlers for that matter. We haven't forgotten about you, Jim Jordan. You got to wonder how many women have to come forward with allegations about sexual assault before it adds up to a single blemish, at least in Trump land. Anyway, I had this idea this morning, a dangerous idea, one I'm actually a little worried about sharing with you as I was walking to work. If Kavanaugh withdraws, or if the White House yanks him, what happens next? The president nominates someone else who will do everything Kavanaugh would have done if Kavanaugh had been confirmed. Anyone Trump nominates is going to be the fifth crucial deciding vote in overturning Roe v. Wade. Anyone Trump nominates is highly likely to overturn Obergefell, the 2015 ruling that legalized same-sex marriage across the country. Anyone else that Trump nominates, like Kavanaugh, is going to rule in favor of big business and industrial polluters and against voting rights and against organized labor. So here's the thing that I started thinking on my way to work. Let's put Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. Fatally compromised Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh, who's lied under oath before Congress on more than one occasion. Kavanaugh, sexual predator. Kavanaugh, who served in the Bush White House and worked for Kenneth Starr way, 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 way back when Republicans believed marital infidelity was grounds for impeachment. Those were the days. Anyway, Republicans have blocked the release of millions of pages of documents related to Kavanaugh's quote-unquote service in the Bush White House and on the Starr Commission And those documents are going to come out in the next year after Kavanaugh's on the Supreme Court if he got confirmed, which maybe, just maybe, he should be. Because if we don't confirm this piece of shit, we're going to get some other piece of Federalist Society shit. But someone who doesn't have Kavanaugh's baggage, someone who doesn't have Kavanaugh's record of allegedly attacking women and of perjuring himself before Congress— It is a high-stakes gamble, I realize, but bear with me. If the Dems allowed Kavanaugh to be confirmed on a party-line vote, which they don't really have the power to prevent, then take back the House and Senate in November, which is looking ever more likely, in January of next year, the Dems will be able to point to the sexual assault allegations and the perjury and whatever documents will be coming out about Kavanaugh and impeach the motherfucker. Congress can impeach a sitting Supreme Court justice. Takes a majority vote in the House to impeach and a two-third majority in the Senate to convict and remove. And yeah, that two-third bar is set awfully high. Even if the Dems should take back the Senate, 
they're not going to have enough seats to convict Kavanaugh on their own. But if more and worse keeps coming out, and if Republicans, as looks likely even if Kavanaugh isn't confirmed, pay a political price for floating and then polishing and then confirming this turd, maybe enough of the remaining R's in the Senate will break and vote to remove Kavanaugh from the court after he's been impeached, fingers crossed. It is a chance, and it is a long shot, and it is a Hail Mary pass, but you put fatally compromised Kavanaugh on the court and then you remove him, what do you got? You got a 4-4 tie. Liberals versus conservatives, just like we had for that whole year after Antonin Scalia died. No 5-4 conservative majority means no overturning Roe or Obergefell or Griswold. And post-impeaching Kavanaugh? Dems, of course, should refuse to even consider the nomination of anyone whose initials aren't Merrick fucking Garland. The president can nominate whatever Federalist Society stooges he wants to until Mueller or a blocked coronary artery, whichever comes first, ends Trump's presidency. I don't want to see a rapey, sexual harassy piece of shit on the Supreme Court. Well, I don't want to see any more sexual harassy pieces of shit on the Supreme Court in addition to the one sexual harassy piece of shit we already have on the Supreme Court. I don't want to see Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court more than anyone else. But if we don't get Kavanaugh, we're going to get somebody without Kavanaugh's impeachable flaws. And that's somebody likely to sail through the nomination process, likely to be the crucial fifth vote. I would prefer that 4-4 tie to that crucial fifth vote. And if that means Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court for a few months before he can be impeached, might be the better choice. All right, coming up on this week's show, on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast, twice as long and no ads, you can subscribe at savagelovecast.com. Liz Winstead, founder of The Daily Show, also founder of Lady Parts Justice, joins us to take a couple of calls and to talk about the golden probes in New York in November. All that coming up today's show. Hi, Dan. 46-year-old bisexual male living in D.C., I've had two relationships in the past 20 years, one for 12 and one for seven-ish. Both ended with the other person cheating, and now I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't know that I want to be in a relationship if it's just going to end in five to seven years. I feel like that's wasted time, but I don't really know what to do. I've dated a a really nice trans guy who I actually like, but I I feel myself pulling away from him when... Uh, I want to be getting closer because I don't want to get attached and don't want to get hurt again. Uh, I've been single now for almost a year, and I don't really know what to do. My sister is like uh, this person who doesn't need anybody. She lives on her own. She has two kids by herself, and that she doesn't need anybody. I want to be like that, but that is not me, and I don't really know where to go from here. If you don't want to get hurt again, don't get in a relationship ever again. Even if in all of your future relationships and this relationship that you're in now or any relationship you might be in after, the odds, the risks of getting hurt are about 100%. Not the risk of getting cheated on again at 100%, but all long-term committed relationships, that kind of intimacy, there will be pain. There will be hurt. Both parties will cause each other hurt over time and both parties will need to find it within themselves alternately to forgive because forgiveness is the grease that makes it possible for the gears and machinery of a relationship to grind on. Some people, of course, find it within themselves to forgive an infidelity. We rarely hear about those people. Often when someone cheats, the only person who found out besides the person they cheated with was their partner. 
And if their partner forgives them and takes them back and tries to make it work, they typically don't broadcast that because they don't want to be seen as pathetic. They don't want people to judge them for staying. Maybe they don't want people to judge their partner for cheating. Sometimes dealing with the anger and resentment of our friends or our family after we've forgiven a cheating partner and moved on is exhausting for the cheated on partner. It's the cheated on partner who often has to field and deflect grief, questions, even anger coming from others, third parties, people who aren't in the relationship who believe they should be able to dictate to the people who are in the relationship how and when it should end. Anyway, it's a long digression about cheating and forgiving, but if you don't want to ever risk being hurt ever again, don't ever date ever again. Because as I like to say, every relationship you're ever going to be in is going to end until one doesn't. You don't know which one that is until you're in it and you die or they die. So you get to that death to you part thing and you get to spike the relationship football in the funeral home end zone. You just never know. And you have to be willing to suspend your disbelief. You have to be open to being hurt again to be in a relationship. Look around. How many people do you know who are with the very first person they started dating at 15 or 20 or 25? How many people do you know over their entire adult lives are with their first love? Very, very few. Which means people have gotten hurt. People have gotten dumped. People have gotten cheated on. People have grown apart. Relationships have blown up. People have touched the stove and gotten badly burned and then turned around six months later or a year later and touched basically the same goddamn stove, that relationship stove. You got to be willing to risk some pain to have the relationship that you want to be in. There's just no way of avoiding that. Hi, Dan. I'm a 20-year-old queer woman from New York City. I'm dating two women on and off right now. I'm still in the early phases. Both of them do not like um, being touched in any way. They like their vagina rubbed, but nothing, no penetration. Um, they do not like the idea of me going down on uh, either of them. Uh, they don't know each other either, by the way. Um, it's something that I've had before where I've dated women who are self-proclaimed tops and they don't like to receive and that's fine. Um, but it, with these women, I feel like it's something more like they're self-conscious. Um, and I'm not sure how to let them know to trust me and it's totally okay. I haven't even had the opportunity to like go down on them at all, let alone like really see their vagina. So I'm not really sure what to do about that and how to make my partner feel comfortable and trusted. And I know that this is a common thread for some lesbians in my circle. Um, so I wanted to hear about you and maybe your viewers, if they had any input as well. I would file do not like to be touched in any way under not in good working order. Now, maybe there are women out there who would be good matches for these women that you, you're dating right now who do not like to be touched in any way except to be rubbed against, which is a form of touch. There is one way, some way they like to be touched, but they don't like to be touched in the way you would like to touch a woman that you're dating. You would like to be able to have a look at her vagina. You would like to be able to go down on her. You would like to experiment or incorporate some penetration play. So whatever the root causes might be for the reason why these two women don't want to be touched in the way you want to touch them, they're really irrelevant. They're just not the right partners for you. You're not sexually compatible with these women. Their limitations, whatever their root cause again might be, kind of disqualify them from being your girlfriend because again, they don't want to be touched the way you would like to touch 
your girlfriend. And you can have that conversation with them. And you should tell them when you have that conversation that you don't want to manipulate them emotionally or coerce them into consenting to engage in sex play under duress just to keep you. Sex play, which if what's at bottom here is a history of sexual trauma or sexual violence, could be triggering for them to engage in. You don't want them consenting to that. You don't want to make them unhappy. You would like to be with a woman who wants to be touched in the ways you would like to touch a woman who will drive pleasure from that kind of touch. And if they aren't those women, then they're friends, not girlfriends. Then you should keep searching until you find a woman who can be touched the way you want to touch the woman that you happen to be dating, which is more than just rubbing off against. You can handle this compassionately and you can give them an out. And there are, as you said, in lesbian land, there are sexual and relationship dynamics just like this, where one person is done to, one person gets her pussy eaten, one person maybe is on the receiving end of penetration, and the other person is kind of the top and doesn't want to be touched or doesn't want to receive touch. The girl who wants to be the doomy bottom, who just lays there receiving and doesn't really want to touch is the better potential future partner for either or both of these women than you are. So resist the urge to get under the hood and repair these women. I know I said at the beginning of my response, maybe they're not in good working order and the temptation then is to set someone right, is to take them off to the shop or pack them off to the shrink for repairs. But if this is how they function and this is how they're comfortable and they're not interested in making repairs and they're not interested in working on this, you don't have to commit to them. You don't have to commit to this relationship. You don't have to accept their limitations, which they may not experience as limitations. They may be very happy with who they are sexually and how they function sexually. It's just they're not going to be happy with you because you're not going to be happy with them. So we're not motherfuckers, but some dumping is in order here. Hi, Dan. We desperately need your help. I'm a 28-year-old lesbian living in New York City. I started dating this woman for about a month now. We see each other um, once, twice a week, and we make out, we cuddle, we go on dates, go out for dinner, but we have not had sex yet, and that's super weird for me because normally I sleep with someone on, like, the first or second date. So that's strange. We've even, like, cuddled in bed naked watching a movie and like nothing's happened i'm not really sure what to make of it or like we are we in a friend zone maybe she's like self-conscious i don't know i know i have my insecurities i'm just really confused and i did actually send her a text being like you know what's going on that night that we slept in the same bed together um half naked and she wrote oh i was really scared from the movie like that's why she didn't want to hook up sounds like an excuse to me i wanted to hear your thoughts not just an excuse, but a transparently bullshittery excuse. I was scared from the movie. We all live for scary movies. They get our adrenaline pumping. That risk-fear response actually typically is arousing. People go see scary movies or they watch a scary movie at home and then they fuck. That is how scary movies work for most of us. So that does seem like a reach to me that, oh, well, uh, yeah, we were naked in bed and uh, we've been dating for a month. And, uh, but that one time we could have had sex that one night, uh, we watched a scary movie. I ate a burrito. My grandmother appeared in a vision over the bed, staring at me. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Something's up. You've only been dating this woman for a month. How experienced is she? Are you her first girlfriend? You're relatively young. Is she relatively young? It could be just anxiety and nerves around really tiptoeing across that threshold. 
There is wanting to date women, wanting to be with the same sex partner. And then there is finding yourself in bed with a woman with the same sex partner and having a mini freak out about what it will mean if you cross that Rubicon or that Ruby fruit jungle con and have the lesbian sex that you've been fantasizing about. Because there's thinking about it and the emotional ramifications of that and the internalized homophobia that that can trigger. And then there's the doing it. And the emotional ramifications from that potentially and the internalized homophobia that can trigger are much bigger, scarier. And she may be wrestling with that. But but I don't know. You texted her and asked her what was up and all you got back was scary movie was up. Not good enough. You want a girlfriend, like the previous caller, you want a girlfriend that you can be intimate with, you can have sex with. If after a month, after this investment you've made of a month's time and many dates and sleepovers and scary movies, she can't get there and can't tell you if or when she'll ever get there, you need to stop wasting your time on her. Yeah, Dan. Uh, my name is uh, Kyle, and um, I actually have two questions. So number one, um, you know what I'm saying? I've basically been suffering from, from high blood pressure, which actually leads to ED. And um, it's kind of been interfering with my relationships or whatever. And um, I kind of mastered the oral arts and it just doesn't seem to work really well. Uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And trust me, I'm damn good at it. You know what I'm saying? But um, I, I guess I've just been, you know, wondering, I don't know, uh, where to proceed. I mean, and then too, you know, this is a really new thing. And I kind of been, you know, depending on you know, my penis really for all my relationship needs. And I guess I just don't know what to do without it, I guess. And I didn't want to like redefine myself as somebody who can't have a relationship without his penis. So, and my second question is, so, um, how to tell my parents that since I haven't had my penis, the use of my penis in a while that I've actually been discovering other ways to be, um, you know, um, satisfied, without it kind of like um my very conservative parents all right your parents do not need to know what is up with your dick this is the best example i think i've ever gotten of your parents don't need to know you run your parents on a need to know basis about your adult relationships and your adult sex life and your parents absolutely positively do not need to know that you're experiencing erectile dysfunction at this time and consequently you're eating a lot more pussy than you used to that's just not something even if your parents were liberal and sexually adventurous and you guys routinely joked about your sex they just need to know this and i promise you conservative or liberal your parents don't want to know this Unless your sexual problems are causing you such distress that you're engaged in acts of self-harm or you're worried you might be or you might become suicidal, then maybe you would have to go to your parents and tell them what is up. If you need their help dealing with a problem that ties back to your sexuality, maybe then, but not now, not, not in this circumstance. So starting with your second question, don't worry about what to tell your parents because you are not going to tell your parents anything about your dick right now. The person you're gonna to talk to about your dick is your doctor. You're going to talk to your doctor about getting your blood pressure under control, and you're gonna to talk to the doctor about whether there are any boner pills out there that are safe for you to take with your condition and with the meds you're on for the high blood pressure. And you're going to communicate to your partners that because of a medical condition, your dick isn't entirely reliable, but your fingers are always hard, and your forearm's always hard, and your tongue is available for service. 
and you're good at it. And you can lay in a few penetration toys to keep around the house if you want to go above and beyond the call of duty. But tongue and finger and forearm and vibrators and dildos, all of that is a path for a guy with erectile dysfunction problems to get their partner off, also to take the pressure off their dick in the moment. Because if it's understood going into the sex that your dick probably won't be involved, then you're not going to be worried every moment about the revelation that your dick isn't going to get hard and your partner's disappointment because your partner will go into that sex with their expectations adjusted, not lowered, adjusted for other kinds of sex play that they enjoy. I get calls, sir. I get calls every day from women who are into PIV, enjoy PIV, but it doesn't get them off. It's not their favorite thing. Their favorite thing is getting eaten out, being gone down on. So you may wind up in bed with a few women who miss the PIV so much that you're not the right partner for them. But there's also a really good chance you're going to wind up in bed with a woman who PIV just isn't her top priority, isn't her main interest, isn't her preferred route to sexual pleasure and climax. So just put yourself out there. Tell your truth, not to your parents. Tell your truths to your potential sex partners. And the ones who require the D, always available, always hard, they're going to fall away. And you'll be left with the ones or the one partner who enjoys you, enjoys oral, enjoys digital stimulation, enjoys toys. And when your dick does rise to the occasion, enjoys that too. Good luck. G'day, Dan. My wife and I have been together for 21 years. We've been um, monogamish for probably around five, I think. Um, anyway, recently we had a phone-syncing fuck-up where my wife, with a momentary lapse of reason, signed into her iTunes account on our nine-year-old daughter's phone without realising that this would sync the photos feed. And in the photos feed were some very graphic BDSM photos of my wife with her long-term boyfriend of about three years. And the nine-year-old saw these. Now, luckily in their relationship, my wife is the dom. And so it wasn't like she saw her mother, you know, bound and gagged and handcuffed and all this sort of stuff. It was quite the reverse. In fact, um, we sometimes have been laughing in the last couple of days since this happened. But uh, my wife's black and African-American and uh, her her boyfriend, we're in Australia at the moment, is, is a white guy. And there's probably something psychologically beneficial of seeing your black mum beating up a white guy. But um, that's a small silver lining. But nonetheless, the nine-year-old has, you know, seen these photos. And obviously that required a, a, a blunt conversation with her about us not being a monogamous couple. Um, we've handled the conversation as best as we possibly can. Um, again, the photos are pretty graphic. And so the, it's only two days ago that this happened. And the nine-year-old's still a little, like, weirded out, which is totally fine. Uh, we've reiterated that nothing changes for her, that we both really love each other. We're going to talk to the 15-year-old tonight just to make sure that we're not having the nine-year-old have a secret. But, you know, nonetheless, just want to make sure we're doing this as best as we possibly can. We just don't want to leave any, particularly from the BDSM angle, and I'm not king-shaming, I hope, but um, just make sure that we're handling this conversation, particularly with the nine-year-old. It's just a little bit bloody young, um, as sensitively as we possibly can. So I'm just curious if you have any tips or advice for how to handle this, this conversation moving forward or what we should do moving forward. Um, just drop it from now, talk more, I don't know. And also curious if you had any friends with, the, uh, you know, you've got so many 
friends with experience in the kink communities? How do they come out or talk to their children at what age? Has anyone else been busted and how did they handle it? And if any of your callers have experience of either being busted and how they handled it or busting their parents and what was the impact on them, I'd just be really fascinated to know. So if there's anyone out there listening who's been busted and kink-shamed by their kids, please give us a call. Tell us how that went. If there's anyone out there who's kinky or poly and came out to their kids and had these conversations and it's ten, they're 10 years in the past and you feel it went really well and there weren't a lot of negative repercussions, give us a call. Share your experience with those conversations. I would advise you to drop it. I would advise you to touch base with the 15-year-old. I think that's really important that the nine-year-old doesn't have the burden of keeping secrets from siblings. It doesn't have the burden or the weapon of having a secret on mom and dad. So yeah, I would come out to the 15-year-old about it. And I would apologize to the nine-year-old that this was an accident. And now you know something about your parents that you probably had a right not to know, certainly no need to know at your age. But relationships are complicated. Not every relationship is monogamous. A relationship can be committed without being monogamous. And sex is about pleasure and fun. And sometimes it's about dress up and make-believe. And a small child can understand make-believe. They know what sex is and they know what dress up and pretend is. And explaining to them that one of the things some adults like to do is continue to play to continue to play dress up as adults and incorporate that into their adult sex life as well. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with what your mother was doing. This is a great opportunity to have a conversation generally and broadly about consent and what consent means and how play that adult play can sometimes look scary, but it's like a scary movie. It's just pretend and then fucking drop it. And then tell her if she has any questions, she can always ask you about anything and then fucking drop it and let her ask. If she asks and answer questions like you would from a child, she may come to you needing reassurance. It is scary for a kid who's assumed because it is the default setting that their parents are monogamous and monogamy means love and love means monogamy and monogamy means commitment and commitment means monogamy to find out their parents aren't monogamous. They can worry that this means the relationship that is their everything, that is their whole world, their sense of safety and security is vulnerable. And really, there's only so much you can do to reassure a child verbally. You have to prove it to them through the passage of time. So she may be insecure and concerned for a little bit. She may think your relationship is going to collapse in the next few months and then a few months will go by and it hasn't. And then a year will go by and it hasn't and a couple of years will go by and it hasn't. And gradually she will become secure in the permanence of your primary relationship. But that will take some time. Again, if there are others out there, parents who are kinky or poly, who came out to their kids or were outed by technology or outed by snooping kids themselves, give us a call. Let us know how you handled it. 206-302-2064. Dear Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Rescues, 22-year-old Magnum subscriber from Michigan here. I've had this question brewing for a while. To give you some context, I've been with my boyfriend for five years. He's 25. Our relationship is steady, communicative, and has grown into something honest thanks to the love cast. After five years, he is ready to get engaged, and I thought I was too, but something's been holding me back. Aside from the fact that I am 22 and marrying young is not something you recommend, I've been considering the 0.87 theory, that there is no one person that we're meant to be with, but rather a ton of 0.87s and so on that we round up to our one person. 
I know that I could live a happy life with my guy, and I trust that we will make our relationship whatever we mutually want it to be. He's definitely someone that I could round up. Here's the thing. This summer, I met someone who I think is another 0.87, perhaps even a 0.90. This other person and I have kept in little contact because he knows I'm unavailable in my monogamous relationship and doesn't want to be that guy and step on my boyfriend's toes. But the chemistry between the 0.9 and I is a fire. I brought up the idea of being a monogamous to my partner and adopting a policy similar to yours and Terry's after I told him about the 0.87 theory and my encounter. He liked this idea of not only having one sex partner forever and agreed to it, but the next evening I found out he was pud polyandered dress. So we were back to where we began. I cannot stop thinking that although my partner is a 0.87, meaning I could happily round him up, it wouldn't be fair to myself if I knew that there was someone out there that could make me happier. Regardless if it ever works out with this specific 0.9, I need your help moving forward. How do you know who to round up with, knowing that there are thousands of 0.87s out there? 0.87s? My reference point when I talk about rounding up to the one is usually a 0.67. I want to live in your world with all these 0.87s and the occasional 9.0s. So how do you know? You never know. And how do you commit to one person knowing that there are other people out there in the world that might be better for you or a better match or make you happier? Eventually, you just have to choose a seat and sit the fuck down and Yeah, it is likely that there's somebody else out there in the world who could make you happier. There are, we are closely approaching, 8 billion people on the goddamn planet. The odds that there's a guy out there who might make you happier than the guy you're with now or the ass is greener on the other side 9.0 guy that you're fantasizing about, probably 100%, really fucking high. Just the numbers. We're talking billions, 4 billion-ish roughly men out there that you could be with instead of either of these guys. Yeah, one of them could be a 0.92, maybe even a rare 0.95. That said, I think you should keep talking to your boyfriend. You've been with him since you were 17 years old, and he's been with you since before he could legally buy a beer. I think you guys need to make an allowance. I think allowing for some sort of come spring up before you commit to each other, before you commit to marriage. And that doesn't mean committing to never being with anyone else ever again. You can certainly be in a marriage that is monogamish. That is a thing that many married people do. But right now, you guys are staring at this commitment at what would be the next natural step at year five. And it seems like perhaps you might be getting cold feet. I don't think there's a lot of 9.0s in the world. If you're looking at this guy and seeing a 9.0, That may be psychologically you panicking at the thought of this looming commitment that you feel kind of obligated to make. There is this cultural undertow pulling you both toward it, perhaps family expectations, cultural expectations, and building this guy up subconsciously, your subconscious taking over and building this guy up to irresistible and better than the guy you're with now can be your escape hatch. That might not be because the guy is so wonderful and perfect, but because the guy is the self-destruct button or the eject button that you're tempted to slam your hand down on. So think about it and think long and hard, not just about who this guy is, but what this guy might mean and symbolize. 
Because that is, for you, part of who he is. If he symbolizes an out that you want to take, then you want to take that out whether he's there or not. If what you want is out of this relationship, you don't need a dude as an excuse. If what you want is this relationship and the freedom to have some other experiences, to be with some other men, you might have to accept your boyfriend's offer of PUD, poly under duress. Almost all open couples. It wasn't a mutual instantaneous decision. One person was the instigator and the other person may have pushed back and it may have involved many long conversations, some dark and tearful nights. And then permission was granted. And in the end, after their partner slept with somebody else, the person who was put at first, their fears aren't realized. Their partner doesn't leave them for someone else. They don't feel any less attached. It's clear that their partner doesn't feel any less attached to them and may even feel more attached and grateful because being with them means they can also be with this other person or persons as well. And sometimes the PUD partner is overwhelmed by the gratitude and a revival of the, the, the sex in the committed long-term relationship that is now open. That is a surprise for the PUD partner who may think that the desire to open it means no desire to be with me anymore, that the sexual spark between us is gone or insufficient and therefore there is this need or desire to seek sex outside the relationship, which can be true but isn't always and I don't think is true in the majority of cases. Some people ask for open when they want out. That is a shitty thing to do. If you want out, get out. If that's where you really think about it, sit with it. Interrogate your motives here. And if what you want is out, don't ask for open. If you want out, get out. But if you want open and your partner is willing to go there for you, if that's a price of admission that they're willing to pay for you, and at first they're going to be anxious or jealous, trepidatious, but willing, that's a yes that you might have to take for an answer. And you may find when you get to the other side, after you've slept with somebody else, after they've slept with somebody else, once their fears didn't come to pass, that they are no longer poly under duress, but poly happily. Hi, Dan. So this is about my neighbor. We live in kind of a complex that's rent stabilized in New York City. And I'm calling you because he's been dropping some suggestive shit that I'm not comfortable with. And part of this is the fact that a, a previous neighbor that moved out, she said that he flashed her. And quite frankly, I, I didn't actually believe her that, that this happened. And she moved out of the building to a different state, whatever. It wasn't really important to the story. But um, anyway, so in the last couple months, he had a daughter and our dogs are friendly. I actually got my dog through him. He has since, in the last couple of months, been a little more aggressive texting things, uh, pictures. And a lot of the pictures, he just had, you know, he just had a baby. And a lot of the pictures are of him in his underwear that are extremely suggestive. So the, he'll send a, a picture initially that's of the baby and there's maybe an arm in it. And then the follow-up picture is of him a little bit more so with his underwear. And it's very obvious he's, you know, unclothed with the baby. And most recently, actually tonight, he sent me a picture of 
himself fully unclothed with like giant erect dick in the picture. And I love his wife. I know his wife. She's awesome. I guess on a superficial level, he, he seems to be a great person and he did a lot of advocacy work for reinstating our rent stabilization and all that stuff. But, you know, he's also a bit of a pervert. So I sent her a t- the text message uh, with the picture that he just sent me and just let her know I'm not going to associate with this person anymore. We, we had been doing these kind of quote-unquote play dates with our dogs, and I feel somewhat conflicted by the fact that, you know, he's done a lot of good things, but at the same time, he's obviously a pervert. So I'm not really sure what I'm looking for you at this point, but I, I just, I guess I feel bad for blowing up this family dynamic in, in light of these events. And I guess I'm sort of looking for uh, an outside perspective. I'm not sure whether or not I did the right thing. Believe the women. As they say, your previous neighbor told you that this guy flashed her. And that's why she at least had to move out of that apartment. She moved out of state, you said. She really wanted to get as far away from this guy as possible. And you didn't believe her because he seemed to be a good and decent dude. And some guys who are boundaryless perverts, I am pro-pervert. I think perversions can be delightful. But a pervert without boundaries is a pervert who's going to violate people's sense of safety and security. It's a pervert who's not going to respect the basic principle of consent, which was the case here. You didn't want or solicit these photos of him undressed with his infant daughter, nor did you solicit or welcome this photo of his erect penis. So there are a lot of guys out there who are doing decent and good things. Some of these guys do those decent and good things as a form of camouflage so that they get a pass for the not good and indecent things that they do. And sometimes they do these good and decent things intentionally so that when people say, hey, this person did this shitty indecent thing, no one will believe them in the sense that you didn't believe this woman who told you that this guy was flashing her because he seemed so nice. He seemed so good and he'd never shown you his dick. Well, now he's shown you his dick. People generally don't lie about this shit. Somebody tells you somebody flashed them, probably telling the truth. All that said, I think you did the right thing, letting his wife know about this. It's hard not to think of Anthony Weiner and Huma Abedin in this context. I'm sure she would have liked to know earlier, perhaps before it made the newspapers, what Anthony was up to. So I think you did the right thing, letting her know that this is fucked up and that he is doing this and involving their child. If she needs to get the fuck away from this guy, if he has a compulsion that he cannot control, if he has a problem, easier to get away from him now while the child is young than to get away from him in five years or two and a half years or get away from him or divorce him after he's in trouble with the law and runs up a lot of legal debts that she would then be on the hook for. Yeah, no, you did the right thing. Telling his wife. You need to also tell him to knock it the fuck off. You never mentioned when the pictures first started coming, the inappropriate pictures first started coming. And I'm not blaming you for the arrival of the unsolicited erect dick pic, but you didn't say when the pictures first started coming that you told him to stop, that you didn't welcome this. Now, sometimes you tell someone who's basically a flasher to stop and that excites them more and it continues and gets worse. And that's when you involve the authorities or the spouses to create some accountability. Anyway, in conclusion, to wrap this up, you did the right thing telling the wife and that may be the solution to all of your problems 
because that creepy boundaryless perv may not be living in that apartment with his wife and his child for much longer. Hey Dan, 20 something in Seattle. Hey, question. So I'm doing all that online dating stuff and I was curious if you had any tips or tricks on at the end of a date when the person says, Hey, we should do this again. Like, would you want to? And you don't really want to, but there's no real, you know, obvious reason why that person wouldn't have asked to see you again. It just doesn't feel quite right, et cetera. What is like a polite but not awkward thing to say? <laughs> I find myself just saying, yeah. And then later over text, maybe being more, you know, polite yet honest. But do you have any foolproof ways to kind of say no in the moment? <laughs> I hate being dishonest, but it's just so awkward to say no in that instance. So if you have any thoughts, would love your would love your take. Joining me by phone to help answer this question because why the hell not? Liz Winstead, founder of Lady Parts Justice League, co-creator of The Daily Show on Comedy Central. Hey Liz, how are you doing? Hi Dan, I'm great. So I, I didn't invite you on to help me tackle this question just for the fuck of it. I actually find myself answering this question <laughs> all the time and it basically boils down to a woman asking me, a man, for my permission to say no to men. Yes. And this this comes up all the time. I'm constantly put in this position where I'm having to encourage women to say no to men. And, and women don't feel entitled to say no to men. Liz Winstead, feminist, why is that? You know, I think that, again, society has just been so dismissive and cruel to women and marginalize them if they actually do ask for what they want. And I think so much of when we talk about Me Too and you hear these men who say things like, well, her signals, I couldn't really get the signal. And I thought she was, you know, gesturing this to me. It's like, this is the problem. We don't allow women to be sexual. I just voice what they need, what they don't want. And then we find themselves in a really shitty game of charades where we hope everybody gets what we want because nobody actually has allowed women to say, you should just say what you want. It's cool. Right. Women are socialized never to say no to a man and men are really socialized to feel like they should never hear no from a woman. And it's a toxic combo. Totally. Totally. And I feel like to this woman, you know, how can I say no? It's like, if you don't want to be with him and at the end of the day, you know, can't you just say, that's awesome. I just didn't feel the same connection you did. And it'll, like, what she's asking, though, it's not just the socialization on, like, whether you're entitled to say no, whether he can hear no. Also, this comes up frequently. People just don't want things to be awkward. And sometimes shit is going to be awkward and there's no stepping around the awkwardness. Awkwardness is sometimes the dog shit you got to step in to get where you're going, which is away from this guy. And you're just going to have to walk through it. Right. And what kind of life does anybody live where awkward doesn't play a role? Like the, the idea that you are exempt from awkward, it's kind of nutty. You know, it's, it's, it's also, you don't have any control over that. And so you're exactly right. It is the dog shit with which we have to walk on the path of life and step in it. If you don't want to see the dude again, then a little awkward shouldn't bother you in the least. It, it, then you don't take on the anxiety 
later of having to text him, feeling bad about yourself that you lied. Like, why do we have to take all that shit on? Don't take it on. Just say thanks. You're awesome. But you're not awesome for me. Also, guys, women have friends. And women talk to each other about the guys they've been on dates with. And, you know, if you're being rejected in the moment, you're hearing that no, maybe you didn't want to hear and your ego's a little bruised. The more graciousness you can scrape up as you handle that rejection and handle that no, the likelier that woman is, particularly if you live in a small town or like a closed kind of community, the likelier that woman is to feel positively about the date, even if she didn't want to continue to see you and vouch for you to other friends. If Mm -hmm. you shit your pants because you heard no, and that woman hears from a friend that she met you on Tinder and is going out with you, she's going to warn her off. If, on the other hand, that woman said no, and she finds out a friend is going out with you, and you handled that no like a grown-up with maturity and grace, she's likely to vouch for you and encourage her friend to go on that date. Totally. You know, and I think the conundrum of, this guy was great, but I just didn't click. Like, the fact that we don't know what to do with that feeling of, I should like him, but I don't. Why don't I feel fine about saying we didn't do it? Instead of just, like you just said, oh my God, I just met this guy on Tinder who was awesome, and I didn't click with him, but I think you'd really like him. He's, he's all these cool things. I hear that. I'd be totally open to that from a friend. Liz, can we keep you around for one more call from Mars? Sure. We got a crazy one. Here we go. Hi, I am a 40-something woman from Washington, D.C., and I have a question that might be testing your GGG meter. Uh, My dad is turning 80 in January, and my mom, who's 70, asked him what he wanted for his birthday, if it could be anything in the world, and he said, I want to be bathed by two Asian women. And my mom was kind of upset about that, mainly because he had no hesitation when he said it, so clearly he'd been thinking about it for a while, uh, and she doesn't know what to do with this. So she asked me, and I wasn't sure... If I should support it, I don't want to sex shame him. But again, it's weird even talking about this um, with anybody, let alone with your own mom. So anyway, Dan, I wanted to throw that out to you, see what you or your team might think about how to respond to this in a respectful, loving way. All right, Liz. (sighs) Your mom calls you, tells you dad wants for his 80th birthday to be bathed by two Asian women. How do you handle that? Oh, my God. I mean, I mean, it's a lot, right? So my first thought was, I go to the Korean baths all the time. Like, I love to go to Korean baths. Was he talking about, take me to a Korean bath? Or was he talking about, I want to be a stereotypic man who wants Asian women to, I don't know. Like, I don't know what he wants. Like, there were so many questions, Dan, that I feel like, I, you're right. You don't want to shame, but it's also your dad. And so do you, are you like in any way, shape or form responsible for your dad? Doesn't he have other wishes? It's like <laughs> maybe someone else could get that for you. And maybe we could go to see like, see a baseball game. And like, I, I don't know. Two, well, two things. He's an adult. And unless he's housebound somehow and helpless, if he <laughs> wants to arrange to be bathed by two Asian women, he can do that without burdening his 70-year-old wife and his adult child with that responsibility. Uh, on the flip side, though, my concern here when I heard this isn't how do I respond to this if I was in the caller's shoes, how do I respond to this in a sex-positive way and not kink-shame my dad? 
the first thing that would come to my mind would be, is my father experiencing cognitive decline? Is this the sign of dementia? Let's get him to the doctor. Like if he's suddenly saying bizarrely sexual things and bizarrely hurtful sexual things to his wife and his daughter after decades of not behaving in this way, that could be a sign of cognitive decline. That can be a sign of dementia. When someone loses those inhibitions, like maybe he's always wanted to be bathed by an Asian woman and, you know, had the good sense not to be cruel to his wife and say that out loud because what she's supposed to do with that. And he's lost the ability to really empathize or project himself into her experience or shut the fuck up. Right. Well, you know, interestingly enough, I'll never forget. My dad one time said to me, I haven't loved your mother since 1955. And I was like, I was born in 1961. So there was some kind of hate fucking that happened that brought me into the world. And I felt a whole lot of feelings about it. So I, I hear what you're saying completely about where is this cognitive decline? Um, or yeah, because maybe he was throughout the course of their marriage, um, having Asian baths. And then for, like you said, There's a lot of variables we don't know, but I think that him putting it on a list and if the relationship isn't about that, everybody gets to go have Asian baths and I just want to make sure that this is what I want for my birthday. Mm -hmm. If that isn't the relationship that this whole, these couple is having, um, why is he just putting that weird birthday bucket list thing onto his wife? Right. Also, I would say to his wife, if I were the daughter in this situation, if this is about cognitive decline, that was a hurtful thing he said, but he didn't say it with malicious intent. He didn't say it to hurt you. This is a physiological problem and, and, a, and a mental problem if he's experiencing cognitive decline and not about him just turning into a monster. And so I would encourage my mother, if my father was experiencing cognitive decline and started saying things that were really inappropriate or hurtful, to try to keep this on two tracks there are these shitty things coming out of his mouth not by because of his will or intent to hurt you they are hurtful and you got to feel your feelings and those things are going to hurt to hear but he's not doing this on purpose he's not being a malicious monstrous asshole if indeed this is related to cognitive decline if your father's just a monstrous asshole then presumably your mother's been dealing with his monstrous assholery for decades yeah and can feel yeah that. i know we don't know the dick meter you know, we don't, <laughs> I need some more information. Like if your dad, you're right. Is your dad just a monstrous dick who's constantly marginalizing your mother, um, acting like she is not the sexual person that he wants and needs. Uh, or is he, yeah, I or think it's really out of character. Information. And if it's really yeah. out of character, instead of your mother calling the adult child, your mother should have been calling your father's physician and making an appointment yeah. for a mental health checkup. Exactly. So, Liz, yeah. while we have you on the phone, really quick, before we let you go, tell my listeners about Lady Parts Justice League and your upcoming fundraiser or event. So, it's, it's been very exciting. So, Lady Parts Justice is a reproductive rights organization that tries to get people to understand what happens in state legislatures is really where all of this garbage is coming from, whether it's LGBTQ fuckery, whether it's reproductive rights fuckery, whether it's voting rights, over-policing, you name it, it comes out of state. And so we wanted to come up with a sexy way to introduce people to 
the shittiest state politicians who are proposing the shittiest laws, especially around reproductive rights. So we came up with an award show called The Golden Probes, and uh, it's dubbed Sexism's Most Glamorous Night. And we do an entire evening with categories like Best Original Science and, like, you know, <laughs> least, least supporting least supporting actor in a reproductive rights role. And so we show clips of all these politicians to really get it into the people's heads that this is profound. It's happening in every state mm-hmm. and you can do something about it. And oh. so Margaret Cho is hosting. You're one of our presenters, Stormy Daniels. We have a whole, the cast of Orange is the New Black. We have a whole team of really cool patriots who are like, I want to help expose the fuckery because we don't see this shit on the news. We see a lot of, it's just like kind of like Trump collusion, Manafort all the time. And it's like, what else is happening in the world? And it's like, this is happening. Yep. So we're going to help you learn that. And shitty state legislators are the shitty future governors, are the shitty future congressmen and women and the shitty future senators and shitty future presidents often sometimes it is the minor league of bullshit for sure (laughs) and 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 people out there who are concerned about roe v wade and people who are concerned about marriage equality the shitty laws that are really teed up for the supreme court to then intervene and overturn roe or overturn obergefell those come from the shitty states and the shitty state legislatures and legislators who are teeing up these awful bills these restrictions on a woman's right to control her own body on her constitutional right to seek uh, abortion care if that's what she determines that she needs those come from the states ohio will pass some shitty law alabama will pass some shitty law and send it up to the supreme court to rule on yeah. so we do have to pay attention to the states and it is something the left's not very good at that the right is the right is good at building right. a deep bench and working on states and the left is like who's my next presidential pick that's exactly right and i think what people don't understand is like when they see some shitty law in ohio or in missouri uh that law is being proposed in a whole bunch of different states as a test balloon Right. There is rich, rich, organized organizations that's writing model legislation that creates this fuckery. And then and so the, the news media says, well, if it's happening in Ohio, it's not really national news. And it's like it's happening in 12 different states. It's a trend that is a trend that wants to a become federal legislation, but also go through this court system that Trump is stacking. Right. So mm-hmm. it's like it'll be upheld in a federal bench now and then go to the Supreme court. And if Rome does get overturned, it's, you know, to me, it's super important for people to realize that all that means is the horribleness of that means that abortion access uh, will go back to the States to decide if it will exist. Mm -hmm. And the second part of that is then the States will decide if abortion should be legal in America at all. What I like about the golden probes is you're going to introduce us to individual shitty state legislators um kind of like soylent green and corporations shitty legislation is people shitty people advancing (laughs) shitty legislation and meeting those shitty people and knowing their names and their faces i think is important because it creates a kind of accountability for people who are doing shitty things with their public office to harm women to harm people of color who want to access the ballot box to harm queers to harm trans people so i think it's very important I, i think the kind of work that you do where you like meet this motherfucker 
That's not a side issue. These motherfuckers are people whose names we got to know and want to know. And we've seen that happen. You know, there's some state legislators like Sally Kern in Kansas who has a national profile for being a vicious, demented homophobe. And that's important. She's not going to move on to higher office because she's so tagged now. And you guys at Golden Probes and Lady Parts Justice working to tag more shitty state legislators to really derail their careers or long-term yes. goals or, or aspirations. I think that's so important. Tell my listeners, uh, Lady Parts Justice League's uh, Golden Probes Awards in New York City, what date and where are people who are in New York or can get to New York, where can they get tickets? So this is really cool. So you can go to goldenprobes.com. It's October 20th at 8 p.m. is the live show. But, and here's what's awesome, uh, we're doing a big shoot and then the edited version of the full show will be uh, streaming at goldenprobes.com on October 28th. And there's watching parties all over the country that night. And so soon we'll be just posting them up. But you can live stream and live tweet with us on October 28th if you can't join us in New York on October 20th. Liz Winstead, founder of Lady Parts Justice League and co-creator of The Daily Show on Comedy Central. Liz, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. That was really fun. Dan, can't wait. I can't wait to see you. See you at the Golden Probes. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old cisgendered female uh, from the Midwest, and um, I'm calling with a parenting question. Um, I've been in a relationship for about two years. I'm living together for one, and we are great, and everything is wonderful. Our relationship is really strong, and he has two young kids who I absolutely adore um, and love. The problem is that I am not a morning person. Um, During the weekdays, I get up an hour before I need to get ready so that I can walk my dog and that's my time to get myself ready for the day. On the weekends, however, uh, his kids come into our room anywhere between 5 30 and 7 in the morning for morning cuddles um, and I don't get that hour to wake up. And so my question is, what can I do so that I am not taking out my morning crankiness on the kids um, and in, to um, encourage and maintain the family ritual of morning cuddles um, without being a bear toward them? They will outgrow this. This is a problem that's going to solve itself in time, and you may just have to eat it for the moment and find it within yourself during the morning cuddle ritual to be as nice as you possibly can. And that can involve welcoming the kids and then rolling over and pretending to fall back asleep so that they give their full attention to their dad. If it really does bother you, and it would bother me being woken up at 5.30 in the morning, you can ask your partner to intercept the kids on those weekend mornings that at 5, 5.36, he should get up and go to the couch and have the kids come to him there and have the morning cuddle ritual not in the bed where you're trying to get enough sleep so you're not a monster all day, but out in the living room with dad. That said, it's really hard to get little kids not to do what these little kids are doing. So the intervention can't be on the kids, a talking to, a scolding, a punishing. No, it's going to have to be on you to roll over and go back to sleep or on him to take the cuddle party to the living room and the sofa out of consideration for your need for a little bit more sleep. And again, look forward to the very near future when they won't be doing this anymore. I promise you. Seven, eight-year-old kids, they don't do this. Hi, Dan. I'm a mid-30s cisgendered white female from the West Coast. 
from the ages of uh, 17 to 27 years old, I identified as a lesbian and super involved in the LGBTQ community. Since, I guess, becoming out as bi at 27 and now being married to a cisgender male, um, I've struggled with adapting my vocabulary that I use while part of the LGBTQ community to my everyday life now. Essentially, I still don't censor myself with words like dyke and faggot um, when I'm having conversations with my friend group, mainly in the way of discussions, never in a derogatory way, never, you know, calling someone that sort of name when I'm out like at a restaurant and it's in a degrading way at all. Um, it's more when we have conversations about the LGBTQ community. I just don't censor those words from my vocabulary because those were words that I was very comfortable using when I was a part of the LGBTQ community. And it's been really hard to to drop that. Um, I guess my question is, what are your thoughts on that? I, I want to be sensitive to that demographic. And now that I am a you know married, seemingly straight woman, I want to make sure that um, I'm not asserting my privilege in that way and, and using those words in a way that doesn't actually further the conversation for the LGBTQ community or actually provide any sort of support um, to that community. So I love your thoughts on that and, and any insight that you have. It's interesting, about two-thirds of the way through your call, you refer to yourself as a member of the LGBT community, but in the past tense, which left me wondering whether you identify as straight now or you identify as bi. There was a decade there where you identified as a lesbian and you had same-sex relationships. Now you are married to a man. I assume that in that decade you enjoyed being with women, enjoyed sex with women, and still enjoy the memory of it, even if you're monogamous and committed to your husband and not having sex with other people. I would read you, if I knew your history, as bisexual, not a past tense member of the LGBT community, but a current and in good standing despite your opposite sex relationship. You can be in an opposite sex relationship and be queer. There are lots of straight trans people out there. There are lots of bisexual people in opposite sex relationships out there who are members of the LGBT community and therefore can, at appropriate times, use that in-group lingo and toss those hate terms around affectionately. But you need to toss them around thoughtfully and you need to be considerate. I use the word faggot all the time. I love the word faggot. Terry and I use the word faggot a lot. But if I'm out in public, I'm a little bit more careful about when I use it and, and where I am because I don't want some closeted 16-year-old gay kid to overhear me using the word faggot and feel threatened because maybe I don't read as gay at that moment and he's reading me as straight or just immiserated, even if he doesn't feel threatened, just worried for the world that he's entering. If adults are so hateful, presumably straight adults, which he may perceive me to be, that they're just going to toss that word around. So I do use that word. I use that word a lot. I use it thoughtfully and I try to be considerate of others around me. So caller, if you're in a circumstance where you believe that you are read as straight and there isn't time to unpack for all who may overhear you that you are not straight, you are bi and a part of the LGBT, QLFTLS, QQIAA community, maybe you don't use dyke and faggot at that moment. But when you're with your queer friends, when you're with people who really know you, no reason to self-censor. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the youth. I could really use some perspective on an emotional dilemma, which is bordering on consuming. Six months ago, I went on three lovely dates with a woman that I continued to be floored by. 
On the third date, it was revealed that she was fresh out of an almost decade relationship. Then in the few following days, her increased distance was capped by a text explaining that she wasn't ready for something like this. So nearly two months of almost daily communication and flirting evaporated. Since then, not a day has passed in which her image, her smile, her tattoos, her hair has been flashed across my face and absolutely sunk in me with pain of not having her around and the pain of suppressing every urge to reach out out of fear of pushing her even farther. She's constantly in my dreams. Every text I receive is a disappointment because it's not her, and the few dates I've been on since fail to light me up like being close to her did. I'm afraid to mention this to friends because we have quite a few mutual ones. I'm afraid that the level of hurt I feel is just ridiculous. Nonetheless, I hurt every day because I miss how I felt when she was around or talking to me. I'm so close to reaching out and divulging some of this to her, but is there a way to do this without seeming like a loon? Or do I just have to hope she understands? I feel your pain. I have carried that torch. I was so in love with Tommy Ladd when I first got to college. I was around your age. How old are you? I'm guessing your age. I'm 27. Okay. I was a little bit younger than you are now, but you know, we dated briefly, we messed around and then he had to move away. And I just, I carried a fucking torch for that boy. I was so in love with him. I couldn't date anybody else. I couldn't think about anybody else. I'm not with him now. And I remember him fondly. Tommy Ladd, may he rest in peace. Uh, AIDS took him. Uh, I remember him fondly and I always will, but it didn't take, long for me to get over him but it took longer than six months so right now you're you're entitled to feel the fuck out of these feelings but you have to recognize on some level how hopeless these feelings are and how deluded (laughs) and self-delusional they are because you went on you went on three dates and swapped some text messages with a woman six months ago so you don't really know her very well no right And dating, I like to call it a discovery process. And often what you discover during that process are the, the reasons you can't be with this person. You know, the deal breakers, the, price of his, the prices of admission you aren't willing to pay. You know, we date people, we date a lot of people, and we marry very few. And so you can't know, you know, if you continued to date her, whether you would be breaking up with her right now. I know, and like, and the 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 crazy, the torturous thing is like, I I I'm some days I'm glad because I don't know like I, what pursuing a relationship with her meant, you know, like I I'm I'm genuinely happy that like she went ahead and ended it because I'm like I don't I don't know what I wanted out of this. I didn't go into this like wanting a wife necessarily mm-hmm. or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um but it's like it's <laughs> it's those other days and it's like the weird, you know, random, you know, seeing her, you know, out in public or something and my just like my heart races and, and sinks at the same time. Right. And it's but but just, why, wait, why is it racing and sinking? It's, but it, your, heart, your heart races and your heart sinks at what was possible, not at what was. Yeah, and, and, just, and 
and just her her damn face. You okay, know well, I mean? she's gorgeous. It, you know, that, that, that's a fact, not a possibility. <laughs> but your heart races and your heart aches because you invested in her a hope for a relationship, for a future, whatever form it might take, right? You did that. And, and, and that's a lovely thing. And everybody does that at the beginning of a relationship. We get in that infatuation stage. We attach all of our hopes and dreams to this person. And then over time, they reveal themselves to be either worthy of our hopes and dreams are unworthy of our hopes and dreams. In most cases, in almost all cases, they prove themselves to be unworthy or we prove ourselves to them to be unworthy of their hopes and dreams and the relationship ends. So there's some part of your, you know, frontal lobe that needs to be an argument with your reptile brain in telling yourself, this is just a fantasy that you're obsessed with. What could have been, and you don't know if that's what would have been if she'd been in a place where she wanted to date you. The other thing you need to tell yourself, and I, and I hate to be the bearer of scalding news or truths, is when people say, I just got out of a relationship, I'm not in the right place right now, that's a lie. They may have just gotten out of a relationship. But when people say that, what they mean is, I'm not feeling it, but I want to be nice to you and, and blame circumstance rather than say, look, I'm just not that into you. So that you don't, you know, it's some people somehow get it in their heads. It takes the sting out of the rejection. And there really is no taking the sting out of rejection. Rejection always fucking stings. And the problem with telling people like, oh, the circumstances aren't right right now is then they live in hope that maybe the circumstances will change down the road. Exactly. And so right now you're living in hope and you need to tell yourself there is no hope. <laughs> I'm sorry to be that blunt. There is no hope. No, no, thank you. I need it because like, I've also latched on to it as like, not like I don't fantasize about like what our life would be right now necessarily. I, I, I fantasize about the rejection and, and not being rejected. And it's like, a, it, it's, it's not even her at this point. It's like some fucking experiment that my, my brain keeps on running you know, scenarios for, and uh, uh, it's just like getting back together or other rejection scenarios. What is your, yeah. Or, you know, the time being right, or, you know, what I could, what perfect thing I could say to, you know, convince her that stop it. uh, Stop doing that. You know, it's worth another I'm here to shot. I'm here with another pot of scalding hot water to say, there's nothing you can say to her that'd make it right because she isn't interested in being with you. If she was interested in being with you, she would be with you. She knows that you're available. She knows that she had to dump you. She can, I bet when you guys are in the same place, she can see you pining, (laughs) right? If you want to, you could send her one last note that says, if you're ever open to dating again and you're in the right place, I'm still open to dating and then drop it. Yeah, And if you get radio silence back or another like soft rejection deflection back, then you have to take that as an absolute ironclad confirmation that it is never going to happen. And then you need to get out there and date other people and fake it till you make it. There's that old saying that the best way to get over someone is under someone else. I don't know. I don't know if that is. That's how I function, though. I don't know. I like, you know. But I, I was gonna, I had kind of given up hope in talking to you, but honestly, like just, just kind of getting it out that way that I did when I, when I called it, it did kind of shift 
some stuff and like and just kind of like hearing yourself yes. say it. Oh my god, I think that's so important. Like, I, I think that's so. I, yeah. I endorse that one thousand percent. Like sometimes you gotta like you know feel the shit out of all of your feelings and articulate them. And sometimes in the articulating of your feelings and the saying it out loud, you can see how <laughs> ridiculous they are or how ridiculous you're being. And right. feelings aren't always rational. And so you kind of have to let them play out, but you don't have to be controlled by them. So you can you can feel this kind of complicated, contradictory impulse around, you know, pining for her, this desire to be with her, but also know that it's not possible that it's not going to happen and you need to get on with your life and take the steps toward getting on with your life, even if they feel premature, even if you have to push yourself out the door to go on a date, to meet somebody else, because you just never know when you're going to really spark with someone. And beware the self-fulfilling prophecy. Don't tell yourself that so long as I'm feeling this about her, I can't feel yeah. something or spark with someone else because then you decrease the chances totally. that you might feel something or spark with somebody else because you go into that date convinced that nothing's going to come of this. Go into the date with somebody else with an open mind. Like this could be it. This could be some, the start of something big. This could be the, the 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 woman that makes me forget or puts into perspective my feelings for the person that I was with six months ago for five minutes six months ago. Engage your frontal lobes in argument with your reptile brain. Yeah. The one thing that's kind of been like challenging me as of lately as I sort of like feel myself phasing out is like, oh, man, it, it kind of bugs me. I mean, not not ultimately because I love you and I, I trust you a lot more than probably some of my uh, friends in the relationship advising, but it's like, I, I feel like I could have gotten over and said some of this shit to one of my friends, you know, or something like, I don't, that that's what's really kind of been bugging me lately is why the fuck have I, not told somebody and why did it take six months to tell Dan Savage? Like, <laughs> you know, because men that kind of scares me because you know? men are socialized to be stoic, to bottle up their feelings, to not share straight men are often really afraid of any sort of vulnerability or any effort to reach for intimacy with a male friend because they worry it'll be perceived as sexual <laughs> or, you know, homo, not no homo. So straight guys are often really bottled up and boxed in, and I wouldn't lay all the blame at your own feet that you were too inhibited to open up to your friends about your feelings because of the zap the culture puts on straight men's heads. Uh, that we're not, you know, not we are, you are straight guys, gay guys, we're entitled to feel all the feelings. You're not entitled to have feelings when you're well, straight. And if you have feelings... I, I, I do categorize myself as, as not as queer, but... Um... Okay, well, sorry about that. Sorry I made that assumption. Oh no, no, not at all. I mean, but there I are plenty. Of, there are plenty of queer men out there. There are plenty of queer men out there who've been damaged by the ways men are socialized. I think the ways men are socialized often appear or manifest in their most toxic form in straight guys. But like we as queer guys, we sometimes still suffer from this inability to really be in tune with our feelings, open about our feelings, afraid of making ourselves vulnerable in front of other men. That can play out in the lives of queer men too. So I'm happy I was here for you to open up in yeah. that way. Now you know that you can open up in that way. And next time when you, you know, are struggling with feelings, look around your friend group. Find the people that you can be vulnerable with and share this shit with. And if they aren't there, you can give me another call. Okay, Dan. Thank you. You're welcome. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'd like to preface my 
question with a very short story. So this past weekend, I was at my boyfriend's house, and I went to the bathroom after breakfast, number two, and I came out, and he kind of approached me, and we started having sex, doggy style, and he was kind of like playing with my butt, and he ended up putting his finger in there, and then he was like, I really want your butt, and I was like, well, I don't know if it's the best time, because I just got in the bathroom, and he took his finger out of my butt and smelled it, and was like, okay, I think it's fine, and I was mortified, so going forward, I would just like to know what you, when you think is the best time to have anal so that I can avoid my boyfriend sticking his finger up my butt and smelling it to declare whether or not it is a safe time. It may be totally irrational with things that it is never a good time, but I really don't know. I'm kind of new to this. So any advice would be appreciated. Thank you. Going forward, the best time to have anal sex is when you want to have anal sex. And at that moment, when he said, I want your butt, you did not want to have anal sex. And so what you needed to give him was an emphatic no, not now, not ready, don't want to. Butt's not on the menu right now. Instead, you said, maybe this isn't the best time, which he took as an opening for him to do a science experiment where he could test that hypothesis, where he could see if indeed it wasn't the best time. And that's when he pulled his fingers out of your butt and smelled them and determined to his satisfaction that it was a good time, that you were good to go. But it wasn't a good time for you because you had just taken a shit and you were self-conscious and therefore tense and tension and self-consciousness and anal don't go together well. So regardless of whether you took a kind of fiber-rich, clean-out-the-ducts dump that left you at no risk of shitting all over his dick or you were going to santorumize his cock in the process. That's irrelevant. doesn't matter whether you were good to go or not. You didn't want to go. And when somebody doesn't want to have anal sex, they should say so. And when someone hesitates about having anal sex, particularly a woman hesitates about having anal sex, the guy shouldn't read that as let's have a science experiment to see if we're good to go and we can go for it. The guy needs to back the fuck off and get the fuck off your ass. Clearly your boyfriend isn't sensitive enough to take your hint that you didn't want to as an answer. And he pushed on and sounds like in the end he got your butt. You need to commit now to not being ambiguous about this going forward. You need to say to your boyfriend, the other day when we had anal, I didn't really want to have it. Maybe I sent you a mixed message. Maybe in the context of our socializations, mine as a woman, you as a man, it led to sex happening that I didn't want. Because when I said maybe this isn't the best time. I meant no, but I didn't say no. And you as the male in this situation didn't read a no in there. And I shouldn't rely on you to be psychic. And I shouldn't hesitate to say no when the answer is no. So in the future, when you ask me if I want to have butt sex, I'm not going to be ambiguous. I'm going to say no when it's no. And it was no the other day. And so I don't feel great about that sticking your fingers in my ass and giving them a smell and telling me I'm good to go when I wasn't good to go. Period. The end. Zooming out to the poop issue. Poop is, of course, anal sex's everlasting, ongoing PR disaster. Shit happens. There's shit in butts. And you're at risk for getting shit on something if you're going to have anal sex. It's just unknown known. And if you are uncomfortable with that or will be devastated by getting shit on your dick or shitting on someone else's dick, maybe anal isn't for you. 
you do need to know your butt and you can know for the most part when you are good to go. Some people have it in their heads that their rear ends or their partner's rear ends are like chocolate frozen yogurt dispensers in the back of a tasty freeze in Texas during a brownout, kind of always dripping. Not true that if you have well-formed stools after you have a bowel movement, it's not like it's a shit streaked room in there. You are pretty much good to go. Your rectal mucus slid that turd along and you are empty and clean. If you want reassurance, you can douche anally. And some people, their diets aren't so great or their bowel movements aren't so solid. Maybe they should take fiber pills, get a little more fruit and veg in their diets and create those firm stools that mean empty when you're empty. But poop's always a risk. Douching is a pretty effective way to avoid that risk. All that said, if you're not feeling it, if you enjoy anal sometimes and you aren't feeling it in the moment, that is always, always the wrong moment for you to have anal, regardless of how your partner feels about anal at that moment or about how you smell or whether you're ready. It's not up to them when it comes to anal or anything else to determine if you're ready. That's your call to make. This is a message for the gentleman, the 29-year-old who's beginning to open up his relationship with his 11-year common-law wife. Dan's advice is, is pretty good. Uh, the other thing I would add is someone whose marriage is now crumbling because we opened it in a horrible way, go see a therapist. Do not wait. Go see a therapist together, a sex-positive therapist. Uh, Dan has brought them up before in the past. They can help you navigate these very troubled waters, A and B. Accept the fact that one or both of you are going to mess up and drive the other person nuts into a very scary place and, and might panic and talk about that with the therapist, with each other and say, look, things are going to go unexpectedly. You might realize that this bothers you more than you thought it would after the fact. Together, if you're both in it, you can navigate it properly. But asking for forgiveness after the fact is a surefire way to torpedo your relationship. See a therapist talk to each other honestly and openly, and maybe you guys can do what I failed. Hi, I'm responding to the man who calls in episode 621 about explaining polyamory to his five-year-old daughter. Um, I'm a person in my 30s whose parents had an open relationship starting when I was six. It was kept a secret until I was 13 when I learned about it just before my parents split up for other reasons. While it was absolutely devastating to feel like my home had a giant secret for my whole childhood, even as a 13-year-old, I was able to identify that I wouldn't have been able to handle knowing that my parents had other relationships, let alone spend time with them. So as an adult, even, it's been emotionally exhausting developing relationships with all of my parents' various partners. And I work in education, and I pretty firmly believe it's not developmentally appropriate to expect your school-age child to not only comprehend polyamory, but also to make her spend time with other partners. You may feel like you would be keeping your kids from your other partners and not living authentically, but your job is to be her parent right now, not involve her in your marriage. When she's 10, maybe, but... I still feel like it's unfair to expect your kids to emotionally attach to more than one partner. Remember, it's your choice to be polyamorous. It's not your kid. Hi, Dan. This call is in response to the person that didn't know how to answer back to those that were asking if they were going to have kids. What I usually tell people is that my husband got us a vasectomy for our wedding present, and that usually shuts them up. It was the best present I've ever gotten, and kudos to Planned Parenthood for making that happen. 
And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you have a question or a comment, and I bet a bunch of you have comments about the top of this week's show, give us a call, 206-302-2064. Hump, the 13th annual Hump, my Dirty Little Film Festival, is still out there on the road touring this week. You can catch it in Denver, Colorado, Missoula, Montana, Portland, Maine, and Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Head over to humpfilmfest.com slash tour to get tickets and last week in the very room where i'm sitting the hump jury met to pick the 21 films that will be playing in the all-new 14th annual hump film festival that kicks off in seattle portland olympia and san francisco in november go to humpfilmfest.com right now to get tickets to the premiere of the 14th annual hump film festival follow me on twitter at fake dan savage follow liz winstead on twitter at liz winstead the savage Lovecast is produced every week by nancy hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and nancy we'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the savage Lovecast. thanks for downloading